You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Text is Exodus uh, 5, 1 and 2. Later, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh responded, Who is the Lord that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Exodus 7, 1-7 The Lord answered Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother will be your prophet. You must say whatever I command you. Then Aaron, your brother, must declare it to Pharaoh so that he will let the Israelites go from his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh will not listen to you, but I will put my hand into Egypt and bring the military divisions of my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. So Moses and Aaron did this. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. In Exodus 11, 9 through 10, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his land. This is God's word. Well, I'm Chad, one of the pastors if we haven't met, and I'm so excited to be here with you on this Palm Sunday, um, that you would know I am the Lord. Uh, those selected texts, we are covering a large passage, passage excuse me, of Exodus as we've continued in Exodus over these last several weeks, um, and we'll continue on through to the end of May. Exciting. Um, it won't all be for me, actually. Some other folks preaching I'm excited about, too. But that's t- yet to come. Let's look here where we are in the text. Um, that you would know that I am the Lord. This is the escalation of conflict to which God is coming with full force and power on Pharaoh, Egypt, and their gods. Make no mistake, he is making a statement here. And we are covering a large text. This story covers a large section of Scripture, actually through chapter 7 at the uh, verse 8 all the way through the end of 11, uh, chapter 11. But, but what we are looking at and what specifically you heard Heather read from this morning is the lead up and introduction to what's going to happen. And then in chapter 11, what continues to happen is Pharaoh hardens his heart and refuses to let Israel go. Um, This is a, uh, a text in which God puts on display, as even Micah has, has spoken of over and over again, that they would know that I am the Lord, that they would know that I am the Lord. He has introduced himself to Moses. He says, I am Yahweh, and this is my name. And people before have not known my name for who I am. And we spoke of this last week. But here he declares so that Egypt and Israel and all the land would know what it means to be the Lord. And it's a question that Pharaoh poses very specifically in that passage in chapter 5 that is most unique to the setup for what we're looking at, where he says this, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And this is not, if we are honest, a unique question to Pharaoh himself. Consider yourself, put yourself in Pharaoh's position here. Pharaoh is a man in charge. He is the king over one of the most substantially powerful civilizations at the time in the area. He's got a region over towards Palestine of vassals who are, who are at his will. They all, every once in a while, seasonally, would just kind of ride over there and, and harass some towns to remind them that they're under their control. He's got a huge, almost near two million Israelites who are under his thumb, doing his bidding, building for him, building mass monuments. Well, there's extravagant construction projects constantly going on in Egypt, and we still get to enjoy like the pyramids and other things that have come from dynasties throughout history. And Pharaoh is in charge, and he is not opposed to gods. He's not opposed to gods. In fact, they say there's some anywhere, depending on what you read this, that in ancient uh, Egypt, there's anywhere between 1,400 to over 2,000 god deities. 
that they have in their pantheon. I mean, a God covering every aspect you can imagine. It was actually an incredible amount of work within the temples to keep up with doing what those gods needed them to do um, in order to please them. But it's really interesting because he had no problem with a God and no problem with having demands. But in particular for Pharaoh, he had no problem with it because they really didn't put any extra demand on his life. He got to be in control. He got to have authority. In Egypt, he was the ultimate God in power. He was actually considered one of the, the God king, who was the son of Ra, the sun god, deity in the flesh. And now this God, he's like, I'm cool with your God. We've got our 2,000 gods, the, the magicians, the priests, they keep up with what we need to do there. Israel, you guys can have your God if you want to. But now Moses comes and says, yeah, but our God has something he wants from you. Our God has a demand on your life. And as we look back and we say, like, next Sunday is Easter, right? Easter, we're going to look, um, we're going to be moving into the um, Passover meal, which um, is, is a, the sacrifice of a lamb with the blood spread over the door of his people in Egypt. We're staying in the text of Egypt. But it is a precursor to the Passover lamb that Jesus is for us. As he goes to the cross for our sin, and his blood covers us, so that we can stand rightly before God. And this week is Palm Sunday. If you were here earlier, you saw the kids running around yelling Palm Sunday with palm branches they made up and, and just running throughout the halls saying Palm Sunday, excited about it. Um, palm Sunday being that that's the beginning of the Passion Week. Jesus comes into town. All of the people are rightly, understand rightly, acknowledging that he is Messiah and King. He's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and they're laying down palm branches and their coats are laying down a pathway. Think like the, you know, red carpet or some kind of a elegant type row. Something to make sure that this king has a nice walk into Jerusalem, okay? But the problem is, they didn't, they weren't worshiping Jesus as the savior and king that he was. They were worshiping him as the king they wanted him to be. They expected under the thumb of Rome that this man would come and help them conquer and free them from the rule of Rome and have freedom in this life, in this world. Ultimately, that was one of the things even the disciples expressed, like when it's going to go down, we're going to go fight against Rome. How's this going to look? But during the course of that week, they quickly started to realize that's not why Jesus was there because Christ had ultimately in view what they needed the most. It wasn't freedom from Rome. It wasn't a better life now. It wasn't every day being a Friday. It was to free them from the bondage of sin, Satan, and death. The stranglehold like the bondage that Israel is in here, that Pharaoh has on their life. In the same way, like Ephesians tells us, we are dead in our sin. Like Romans says, we are slaves to sin. And so Jesus ends up, through that week, he comes in. He's not the God or the king that they were looking for. He's not the one they wanted. He's the, he's, they wanted a king that, of their own design, of their own desire. And Pharaoh is looking exactly the same way. He wants the gods that make him happy. This God wants him to what? Let Israel go? No. Oh, wait, are you kidding me? You see all these buildings we still have in progress? No way. I've got lots of projects to do. My dynasty, my empire, my fame needs to be spread throughout this land. Sorry, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? And really, this is a question for our time. This is a question, throughout, this is not unique to Pharaoh, right? You having your gods and your truth, me having my God and my truth, that's not new. That's what we hear today, right? We're not, we're not here in this space with some unique idea. Everybody at their heart has a problem, a rebellion trigger, if you will, against the God who asks something of our life. The God who is a creator of all and who has a right to our life. And so we look at our, at our, at our lifestyle, and we look at the things that are around us, and we realize that even though the ancient Egyptians had 1,400, 2,000 deities, all these different things, we can set up our own little gods in our life, our own little hopes, our own little saviors. I, I mean, reality is, there is an innate desire within humanity to want to seek happiness, to seek it somewhere. 
okay? And so we're constantly trying to pursue that. And, and I can tell you, if you ever, you ever wondered why, like, all your advertising, like, is usually full of people smiling? Like, they're always happy about it. It's like, I am young and in shape, and I eat two Big Macs, and I'm happy about it. I'm drinking 20 liters of soda, and boy, I'm loving it. Smiles on their face. There's no... When I eat, like, they look, and they eat in that. First of all, I don't look like that. I don't stay that way. Secondly, the only thing I'm full of is not happiness. It's usually regret. Anybody have that, like, guilty, like, fast food? And you're like, I shouldn't have done it. Shouldn't have happened. <laughs> Lord, forgive me. I know not what I did. <laughs> but the truth is, happiness sells, right? That's, that's, that's what's going on there. You go anywhere in marketing class, they're going to tell you to fix your ad by putting smiling faces on there. Because it, we relate to it. We say, oh, look at that. They're going on that great cruise, and that's such a great time. That might be, I need to do that. You know what? I do need to get some talk. I need to go to Taco Bell today because look how excited that, that makes her look. And you might not, like, think that. I mean, I do get hungry for food when I see it. This, all, this is not supposed to be about food, by the way. I don't know why I keep staying there. <laughs> okay. But, but happiness sells. And what I want to do is for us to ask the question and consider what Pharaoh asked when he says, who is the Lord that I should listen to you? When in reality, we as people are all looking for and believing in things that would f we could find life, vitality, and fullness and joy in, but wanting to do that as the ruler of our own life, as the one that's on the throne. And so we're not that much different from Pharaoh. Because there are inevitably areas in each one of our lives where we pause, and cons we, we, we pause to obey, and in reality are asking, who is the Lord that I would obey him here? Who is the Lord that I would obey him? So let's look first at how God responds to that question. He says, I'm the Lord, and this is who I am. And he does it in what we acknowledge as 10 plagues. This passage actually starts with kind of a preamble to the plagues. It's the miracles that God's doing, and we see Aaron and we see Moses go before Pharaoh, and they throw down the staff, and out comes a snake. Okay, if you've heard this story, if you've seen the Prince of Egypt, if you've watched Moses with Charleston Heston way back in the day, if you've seen any version, you should be familiar with the fact that there's a snake that comes out of the staff. And that's the preempt preemptive, the preamble, if you will, to the rest of the plagues. Not necessarily a plague in itself, but it's, it's, it's God working miraculously through his people. Now the response is we see that the magicians of Pharaoh actually do the same thing. It doesn't seem to indicate that they're doing any tri trickery, but it does say they're magicians. I don't know if it's in the same term that we use. We do know there's sleight of hands and things that can occur in that time. But for the sake of it, we can just say, well, you know what, maybe, maybe Satan supernaturally enabled them to do this and fill this. I, we, there's no reason for us to deny that necessarily. But the next step in this story is that the snake that, that Aaron throws down, that Moses throws down, eats the snakes that the magicians put down. Okay, now this is a subtle attack at Pharaoh. It's sly. Do you know what the, the symbol of Pharaoh's power and authority is? It's a snake. And God said, I rule even the snake. And you put your sermon on the ground, I'll eat that. That's like, I eat you for lunch. <laughs> I'll eat you for breakfast. This is in competition in sports. I think of an illustration that I'm not going to use right now. But again, <laughs> I, I eat stuff like you for breakfast, right? <laughs> well, well, that's literally what he does. He conquers and shows his power initially over Pharaoh, and Pharaoh hardens his heart. But then we go for, further on into the exact um, plagues that occur, and we can actually draw a line, sometimes a little loosely, but almost directly, to where we know that what God is doing, and actually we're told elsewhere in Scripture, is a direct assault on gods that are primary and important to the Egyptians. That they would put their trust in these things, and God says, no, I'm over them. I have control. It says so in Exodus 7, 5, the Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among you. And then Numbers 33, 4, it says that the Lord executed judgments against their gods. 
So he executed judgment against their gods. And how did he do that? Let's look. The first plague is the Nile. He turns it to blood. Aaron stretches out his, his rod and staff, and everything turns to blood, including outside the Nile, inside of different uh, areas that they would normally go to water. Understand the Nile, first and foremost. That's like a, the lifeblood of that area. Like, it is, a, it is a sign of fertility, a signal of, uh, um, of life, because with the flooding of the Nile, they learned to live within those areas. It would provide rich soil for them to plant in. It is nasty to drink directly. Matter of fact, in Egypt, they drank beer more than that. They would, they would use that as a filtration process. Um, but, but it was still provided life to the area. Um, so, so when they came in and they turned it to blood, that's not... You need water to still make your beer, and making beer out of blood sounds nasty, right? So they're still hurting, um, but it's also attacking a deity that's called Happy, God of the Nile, bountiful harvest, prosperity, water, and fertility God. And he's directly assaulting, oh, you put your trust and your hope in the harvest and prosperity of the Nile? I have control over that. Now, the magicians also repeat the, the, the trick, right? They repeat it. They do something. They, take, they find some water. There's, they dig trenches, and they get water out, and they change it to blood of some form we don't know. But the thing is, they can't turn it back, so it doesn't really help them. It just gives them more blood. All right, so the magicians imitate it, and Pharaoh hardens his heart. He's still rebelling in his heart. So the Nile goes back to regular water after seven days, and God now comes and tells, uh, sends Moses to tell Pharaoh, I'm sending frogs if you don't let my people go. Frogs. All right, and we're not talking about a small amount of frogs. He says, literally, I love how it escalates. There's going to be frogs everywhere. There's going to be frogs in your house. There's going to be frogs in your bedroom. There's going to be frogs in your kitchen. There's going to be frogs in your dishes. Can you imagine having frogs everywhere? Who loves frogs? Everybody love frogs? Let's say the first thing a little kid does who likes the outdoors is pick up a frog, right? Okay. He says there's going to be frogs everywhere. Interesting thing about this is one of their deities, their god of fertility, uh, Heket, Heket, has the head of a frog. And, and, and interestingly enough, because the deity is a frog, the Egyptians, by conviction, couldn't kill the frogs. They were everywhere. So they were overrun with frogs, and they couldn't do anything about it. Now, the, Egypt, the, the, the magicians also called more frogs out of the river. But all they have is more frogs. They couldn't get rid of them. So there's frogs overwhelming everything, pushing Pharaoh to appeal to the Lord and say, listen, okay, I'll let them go if you get rid of these frogs. And God does a little sly thing. He doesn't just let them get away. He just has them die where they are. So it's kind of like a nasty ending. But I don't know where this thing is. Just a heads up. If you ever have a problem, you have a home, you have a place that has mice in it. They make rat poison or mouse poison. Right? They make poison. Don't use it. Okay, because they eat it, and then they go somewhere in your walls, and then they die there. And you do not want a dead mouse in your walls. That's like one or two, okay? We had something like that die somewhere in a closet, and it was just there. Like, you open that door of the closet, like, okay. I don't need to go in there that bad. Can you imagine the entire countryside is covered in frogs, and they just die there? They are heaping these things up rot and death and this is something that I don't think should be missed either when Pharaoh first started to oppress the Israelites he took their babies and he threw them in the Nile and then he, he tried to work through the uh, the birth and delivery and he had the, um, the women delivering the babies actually he asked them to kill the babies on the birthing stool trying to harm them where they stand and the first two gods that God goes after is the Nile and fertility. He says, I control that too. And so Pharaoh appeals to the Lord and says, I'll let them go if you end this. He ends this, and Pharaoh hardens his heart. So then we go on further than that, and without warning, gnats come in. Who loves a good pile of gnats in their face? Huh? This is gnats everywhere. I swear, if there's an area where gnats exist, they know me, and they love my face. I, if I remember very, very little from my, my years of Little League baseball, 
is being told to stop swatting of the gnats. Because I would stand in the field, and they were there, and that's all I could see. I'm in the outfield. They could have hit a ball to me. I don't know. Gnats are in my face. I get told this trick. Put your hand in the air. I'm the one standing out there like this. And they're still like, nah, we like it here. It's right here. The whole time. I cannot imagine being covered with gnats. And this is actually the first, this is the first plague that the magicians can't imitate. This is when they give up. They're like, we can't do this. We can't control this. This is the first attack. This is an attack. If the way that, that Aaron does this, he extends the staff, he hits the ground, the dust of the ground flies up and becomes gnats everywhere. And the magicians respond, this is the finger of God. Now, this is not to be anticipated or looked at as their conversion because it's a phrase they use whenever they had something. This is clearly supernatural. They would say it about Set. They would say it about Osiris. They would say it about all their gods. This is the finger of God. But they give up. They have nothing else they can do. God is doing something. And in this case, it's a direct attack on Geb, God of the earth, the one who should have control over the dust. And the Lord says, yeah, here's your gnats. Stop that, Geb. So they let the gnats fly loose, and they eventually go away. It actually doesn't say they go away. I don't know if it's their ongoing existence with gnats for the rest of the story, but they don't go away. Instead, Moses comes to Pharaoh again and says, we got one thing out, one more coming. We have another play coming. If you don't let them go, God will send now, word this wordplay. If you don't send out Israel, then I'm going, I'm going to send in flies. That's, that's literally, if you don't send them out, we're sending something, and we're sending flies. If gnats are bad enough, there's flies everywhere. Flies all over the place. And in fact, this is a place in which God steps in and spares Israel specifically and says that the flies will be everywhere but Goshen where his people are. This is an attack on the god of creation. Uh, Capri actually has a head that looks like an insect, a bug, a fly. Um, the one who they associate with the movement of the sun, rebirth. Then from the flies, as the flies are all over the world, uh, all over in Egypt, Pharaoh responds by saying, hey, look, you can go. Look, he tries to, he tries to compromise with God. He said, you can go, just don't go that far. Okay, just don't go that far. Moses appealed to, to God, just make these go away. And so he does. And then Pharaoh hardens his heart again, and they keeps Israel in place. So we move forward. We go to the fifth plague. The fifth plague is actually of uh, livestock. Livestock are dying. There's a god that they have called Hathor, who has the head of a cow. Head of a cow, the goddess of joy, celebration, love, women, and drunkenness. Now, this is an interesting story. I'm going to have to do a side note on this one. Hathor has this tale where apparently Hathor goes and is sent by the other gods to punish humanity by killing them for their evil. But then she's so bloodthirsty, then the gods say, we've got to stop her. She's going wild. She needs to leave some people so that they can learn from this lesson. And so they put a vat of beer, and they color it like blood because she's so bloodthirsty. And she drinks the whole vat of beer and passes out of sleep like anybody who has too much and wakes up, and she's a joy to be with. That's the story. That's why she's now the goddess of joy. She just has plenty. She's like, you know what? Let's have a good time now. I'm happy. This is their goddess with a cow head. And God says, listen, you might look to her for your joy. You might look to her for celebration, for love, for celebration and excitement, enthusiasm, and all the joy you can, but that's not where it's at. And so he crushes all of the livestock in Egypt. And he doesn't do it to Israel. Again, he says he spares his people. And now this is an interesting take on this, the fact that Pharaoh decides he's still not going to send Israel out, but it says that he sends to Goshen to check and see if God's really telling the truth about the livestock. And so they show up there, word comes to Pharaoh and says, yeah, God really does, he's sparing them. They're good. So the livestock doesn't do it. And now we see the boils come. And the boils is a direct attack on Isis, the goddess of medicine and peace. And, and you know what? In Egypt, cleanliness was huge. It was important. Cleanliness was important. And it says that the magicians couldn't stand for the boils. They couldn't even stand up with Moses because of the covering. They were impure, unclean. 
So God, he's here attacking the goddess of medicine and peace in the sixth plague. And it goes on to the last three plagues, which really turn up the heat and begin to attack life. Yeah, we had livestock die, but in seven, eight, and nine is the precursor for the tenth plague because we start to see lives lost of Egyptians. The seventh is hail. And the warning to them is that if anybody's outside when this hail comes, you're going to die. That's how bad. You ever been in a hailstorm? You ever been in a bad hailstorm? You been hit by hail and it really hurt? Or you seen big hail? Okay. This is killing people. That's a serious hailstorm. And livestock. Don't leave your animals outside. This is an attack on the goddess of the sky, nut. That she would have control over the sky is put into question because God says, no, nah, I'm sending hail. And this is the point that Pharaoh, when you see him turning up the heat, that Pharaoh also says, I have sinned before you. You are righteous, God. Please take away this hail. Please take away this hail. God takes away the hail. Pharaoh says, nah, thanks for getting rid of it, but I'm still not letting him go. And so now God sends locusts, the eighth plague, locusts. This is an attack on Set, the god of war, chaos, storms, and pestilence. And it says literally in there, okay, fine. If you're not going to let them go, Pharaoh, we're sending locusts because the hail came and destroyed all, most of your crops. The locusts are going to take care of the rest of it. And so now that food is harmed, they don't have access to healthy food. They don't have access to the crops. Killing, I mean, if you're, a far, if you're an agriculture society and you don't have the opportunity to set up your food for the next, that's, that's, that is huge. In fact, it's at this point that the advisors to Pharaoh come to him and say, how long must this man be a snare to us? Can you not see that Egypt is devastated? God is making his mark. And then the ninth plague comes in its darkness. Pharaoh and the eighth plague says, hey, listen, I'll let you go with just the men. And Moses says, that's not the deal. And so now darkness comes over Egypt. And it's only affecting Egypt. Can you imagine you're in a spot and like, Israelites are in Goshen and they can see everything fine. This is darkness. It says it's so dark you can't see and nobody was moving. You ever been in a really dark, dark place? I mean, we don't have that darkness here. We have too many city lights. I mean, it, they, we have something called seasonal depression without having light where people are affected in their minds by that kind of darkness. And that's not this dark. And so the people were crippled. And this is a direct attack on Ra, their supreme God, the God of the sun, who is considered the creator of all forms of life, one of the most important gods in their pantheon. Moses brings this to them. And Pharaoh responds again, please, let We'll let the people go. They can go with their families, not just the men. Just leave the livestock. He's trying to compromise with God and hold on to something. And it's this one last final blow that God takes in the firstborn in which he attacks the household of Pharaoh. He has laid waste to every god that the Egyptians have because all those sub-gods fall under these, these, these nine, these ten. But Pharaoh is the ultimate power in Egypt. He is the son of Ra. He is God in the flesh. And what's interesting about this is that when Moses refuses Pharaoh and says, no, we're not going to go because we need all of us, including the livestock, Pharaoh tells him, leave my presence. The next time you see me, you will die. And the irony of that is the next time he sees Moses, a lot of Egyptians will have died. He has literally called out the threat and the, the plague the plague of death of the firstborn affected everybody in Egypt. Just in the same way that, that Pharaoh calls in all of Egyptians to kill the babies of the Israelites, so in this case, we see that all of Egypt is put under judgment. All of Egypt is put under judgment. So those are the 10 plagues. And I want to move, move from there into the question that Pharaoh outlines and consider what God is showing us in these plagues. First is this. He asked, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Well, he shows himself first in these plagues as being transcendent. And transcendent. 
Exodus 9, 15 through 16 says, By now I could have outreached my hand and struck you and your people with a plague, and you would have been obliterated from the earth. However, I've let you live for this purpose, to show you my power and make my name known on the earth. His transcendence. Maybe you're not familiar with this. This is a you know, I'll just, a, a little bit of a theological term, but I wanted to encompass the idea of what God is above all. He is over all gods. He is over all kings. He is God of God, King of kings, Lord of lords. He is an authority and power. And I like the definition that John Frame gives in an essay he wrote on God's divine transcendence and his eminence. And he says this, that transcendence is, it, it, God is exalted in his royal dignity and he exercises both control and authority in his creation. God is asserting himself as the one in control over creation because he uses it to judge Egypt. But he's also asserting his authority because Pharaoh can't resist him. Pharaoh is the God of Egypt, ultimately. He's the king of Egypt. He is their deity on earth, and he cannot resist God's power. He holds both power and authority over and above everything, and he is over all authority that's on earth. Proverbs 2, uh, 21.1 tells us that a king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. And the temptation for us when we're here, just like the Israelites, when they were oppressed in the, in the passage before this, they turned back to Pharaoh and his authority. And they trusted in that more than God. In the same way for us, we can be tempted by the authority and the power that we see right in front of us. That we can imagine that there could be some solution, some hope, some, some freedom, some salvation in what happens here on this earth. And, and the risk is that we would, we would be not obeying God for the sake of trusting worldly authority. Here's what I mean by that. So, you know, I, I grew up in a home. We were all about serving within government. We serve, you know, serving our, our country. We're patriotic. I, I, I stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. I put my hand over my heart. I, uh, I'm no problem you flying the flag. I love the country. I think it's, it's okay to be about the USA. Right? Didn't mean to rhyme, but it was great. Yeah. It's, it's a good thing to, to appreciate what God has provided and what we have here. But what concerns me is when Christians abandon the two most important commandments that Jesus outlined for the sake of some political gain. God told his people to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then Jesus said the second commandment is, is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And there's no better parable than the Good Samaritan that Jesus gives when he describes what that looks like. And you know what's funny about that? God never lets us off the hook for loving anybody. He never lets us off the hook for loving anyone no matter what they believe, no matter what they think, no matter who they are. That means we pray for leaders. We pray for our neighbors that just don't think like us or maybe are kind of aggressive and different. We pray for friends and family or family that, hey, listen, you're born with family. You can pick your friends. And sometimes the family you're given might not be the ones you would have chosen, right? Hey, maybe you're the family they wouldn't have chosen. Let's just admit it. I can think of a few that might not choose me. But, but we love them. Because even God says, love your enemies. He is over all authority. And if God has commanded us to love our neighbor, then there is no exception. He is also all power, powerful and creator. He asserts his power over all these gods. He put the Egyptian gods in the crosshairs and he obliterated them. He left no doubts. No doubts. The second thing is evident in this passage. It's important to look out that God stresses his eminence. He is not only transcendent, high and above and over all, but he's not, he's not separate from us. He is not unknowable. He is near his people. I like also in the essay, Frame, uh, John Frame defines eminence this way. He says that God rules over creation. He is present, 
throughout the whole creation, especially to his people, in a personal and covenantal, covenantal way. How do we see that in this particular text? Well, in Exodus 8.22, you, well, first off, throughout the entire thing, he's trying, to, he's trying to save his people, right? He's near his people. He cares for his people. But Exodus 8.22, he says something interesting. But on that day, I will give special treatment to the land of Goshen, where my people are living. Look at that. He sets aside his people. He places them in a special covenantal relationship with him. He protects them, if you will. But he says this too. No flies will be there. This way, you will know that I, the Lord, am in the land. Okay, Egypt, Pharaoh, I'm cool with all my gods. I'm cool with you having your God. But what Pharaoh needs to know is just because you've picked your gods, the real God doesn't go away. He is imminent. He is present. He is here. God's imminence is both comforting to his children, but it's also terrifying. It's comforting. The eminence of God may be one of the most comforting attributes. It affirms that God knows us. He loves us. He's drawing all his people to himself. And we don't see that any more clearly than in Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, he is called Emmanuel. Who's that? God with us. God literally with us in the flesh. But it's terrifying because like the psalmist in, verse, in uh, chapter 139, Psalm 139 says this, where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in show or hell, you are there. He's like, there's nowhere I can get away from you. That the old dead uh, theologians, especially the Latin-speaking ones, had a phrase that they would use called quorum deo. That is, quorum, the face, and deo, God they would seek to live their life as before the face of God. That they were aware that God was ever present and never, never, never alone apart from him. They were never apart from him. That they would want to walk in such a way to recognize that God is with them, he loves them and cares for them, but also in a way that would honor him. We cannot hide from his presence, but there is a measurable mercy for those who turn to him. See, God's patience with people. He sees all the good. He sees all the evil. He sees all the good, all the bad. That is, like I said, terrifying. You know, one of the things for me, I used to imagine this growing up, and we can still work this out, that, you know, we die and we go to heaven, and as a kid, this is terrifying to me. Are they going to, like, do a slideshow of all the things I did? You know, I thought slideshows back then. Back then, I was like an overhead projectors. All right, let's see what you did next, okay? No, now we're thinking, are they going to show a movie of my life? Is that what we're going to see? There was actually, I think, a, a movie in the 80s where they did that. I, they, they had everybody show up, and they were like, let's look what you did during your life. Oh, that's, can't believe that. God gave you grace, didn't he? So imagine that God knows your thoughts, the purpose behind your deeds. He sees everything, and yet he chooses to love you. He knows you, and he loves you. And with those who don't turn to him like this Pharaoh— he is patient. He is present. He is near. He sees all, but he is patient. And the thing we have to remember is his patience is not ignoring sin, but it's giving us the opportunity for repentance. And Romans tells us as much. It says in chapter 2, do you despise the riches of the kindness, the restraint and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? That's the goal. That's the aim. So God is both transcendent, he's above and all-powerful, but he's also eminent, he's near, and he knows his people. But thirdly, he is immutable. I'm doing, I'm doing the big-time theology words here today. What does immutable, immutable mean? Immutable means I, he is unchanging, I'm unwavering. It's actually the essence of I am. He says, my name is I am. I just am. I'm the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I do not change. He tells Moses that's his name. In Numbers 23, 19, we see that God is not a man that he might lie or a son of man that he might change his mind. Does he speak and not act or promise and not fulfill? He lacks nothing, surprised by nothing. There's nothing about him that changes and there's nothing about your life that he's surprised by. While he knows all things, he is also one who doesn't change himself. He doesn't compromise. Look at the text of Exodus. Does he ever change his demands on Pharaoh? 
No, let them go so they can worship me. Let them go so they can worship me. Okay, we'll just send the women. Nope, let them go so they can worship me. Okay, you can have the women, children, and, and, or just send the men. How about the men and the children but no livestock? Nope, let them all go so they can worship me. You will know that I am the Lord. He is faithful to his word, and that is comforting for us. Because in his promises that he makes to Israel, he fulfills them. He says to them, I am the Lord, and I will bring you from forced labor of Egyptians. I will rescue you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you as my people. I will, you will know that I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, because I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to your fathers, and I will give it to you as a possession. He says, I will do these things, and he doesn't change. He will do it. What he says, he will do. So God is transcendent, he is all-powerful, he is sovereign over all creation, yet he is near to his people, imminent and in work. He is never changing, but the only variable in this is how we respond to him. How do we respond to that rule? And, and I, would, I would propose there are really only two ways we can respond to his rule. There's only two ways. There's rebellion or there's obedience. There's rebellion or there's a obedience. Rebellion or obedience. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Well, look, look, at, look at the answer that, that Pharaoh says. Who is the Lord that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord. Besides, I'll not let Israel go. Complete rebellion to set the tone, and it never stops. He feigns like some, some, some uh, repentance. Remember I told you? He said, I'm a sinner. You're righteous. Please forgive me. But he was only for convenience. It's, it's, it's the, if you will, it's the wartime kind of uh, salvation, the one where you're, you're in the foxhole asking for God to save you and I'll just be right and good now if you just get me out of this mess. That's what Pharaoh's doing. In this particular case, Pharaoh does not have any desire to serve the Lord. And in fact, in the words, I don't know the Lord, he says, I don't even know who this guy is and I don't care. They're not going anywhere. He is the poster child for rebellion against God. He is set up as this obscene cartoon that says, I will never, ever obey you. And this story, right, we, we read is literally a showdown between God and Pharaoh. And throughout the story, it's something it's interesting for us to look at and see that Pharaoh both hardens his own heart, but God also hardens his heart. And I don't want to ignore that because in his rebellion, he is becoming hard to God, but it also says that the Lord hardens his heart. And so what I don't want us to understand and take away from this is that in some way, the Lord is doing something wrong to Pharaoh. Because in the story of Exodus, the first one to rebel, the first one to harden his heart is Pharaoh himself. And if we look at an example in Romans, if we look at an example in the New Testament, we see a similar story where that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay? They're already suppressing the truth like Pharaoh. Since we can be, what can be known about God is evident among them. It's all of creation. All right? But for his invisible attributes have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he's made. As a result, people are without excuse for they knew God. They did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking was worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. See that? They darkened their own hearts first. They did not recognize and glorify God. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. They worshiped other things instead of God. And verse 24 is the key. Therefore, in their own rebellion, God delivered them over to their desires. God was only giving Pharaoh what he wanted, and he was hardening him. He was hardening Pharaoh as Pharaoh was already hardening himself in rebellion against him. He gave insincere repentance. He remained rebellious, defiant, proud. And ultimately, guys, that's the heart of all our disobedience is rebellion, defiance, and pride. I think a helpful thing for us to consider is this. Aren't we inclined to down-talk our own sin? Do you look at the story and say, I'm just like Pharaoh? I don't. I'm like, yeah, come on. Pharaoh's rough and bad. He's the bad guy. I'm not me. That's, I'm me. Look at me. I'm Chad. I smile. I'm happy. But I'm not perfectly obedient. And I think Jerry Bridges in that book, Disciplines of Grace, is actually helpful here because we can sometimes give really soft labels to sin. 
to make yourself feel better about it. There's actually a good book, Respectable Sins, which outlines a lot of that kind of behavior in the church where there's some things that are okay. We might not say it outright, but we act like it. And when we look at this story, Jerry Bridges tries to highlight in the Disciplines of Grace, and he gives names to sin in the way that the Bible describes sin. And the Bible describes it as rebellions, rebellion against God's rule. It describes it as despising God and his word. It describes sin as defying, directly challenging God's authority. And it's interesting about that, defying his authority, is that that is used in 1 Kings when a prophet is just simply not doing what God specifically asked him to do about eating in Samaria or drinking in Samaria and traveling a certain way. Something we'd be like, ah, well, I thought it would be better this way, God. Bridges goes on in that paragraph to say this, and I want to read this quote. As we continue to probe the sinfulness of our hearts using these labels, we also come to self-centeredness, selfish ambition, the love of position, power, or praise, an independent spirit, and the tendency to manipulate events or other people for our own ends. Then there is indifference to the eternal or temporal welfare of those around us. And finally, the cancerous sin of materialism. There's none of us that don't have some guilt in our heart whether we are a believer in the Lord or not. And we need to recognize that the rebellion that's in us needs to be put to death just like the rebellion that Pharaoh was demonstrating towards the Lord. The Egyptian gods here were in the crosshairs, but we set up our own gods in our life. Like, like, like Bridges is outlining here in different ways, we can set up relationships, achievement, comfort, career as our own gods. It's striking that billionaires tend to be the category of people that are some of the most depressed. We have one of the most affluent countries in the world with skyrocketing depression. Do you know that? When I asked this, the, the crew director over here at NC State, what's the big thing that students are struggling with? He says the biggest thing for college students has to do with anxiety and pressure to succeed. That they are drugged down by that pressure to achieve something. And brothers and sisters, here's, a, here's an encouragement I have for you. In this, in this story, God crushes the gods of the Egyptians. And when God crushes some of those gods in our own life, that's a mercy. You might not love it at the time. It might hurt. When you set up something as the thing and it gets taken from you. Can I give a really, really close and clear example of that? It, for those of you seeking relationships or you're in marriage or what, spouses make terrible gods. Ask my wife. She'll talk about her first year of marriage and beyond. I make a terrible God. And to have anything like relationships or, or joy and, and life that's outside of God himself is, is to set up a God that's not the true one God. And, and, and don't hear me that you can't have happiness outside of him. I don't believe that. I think you can have some form of happiness. But even himself, Christ said, I came that you would have life and have it more abundantly. You could have some flash of joy in God's grace in this life or some happiness from things that come this way. But it is not near the fullness of joy that comes from knowing him. And, and here, let me challenge you, as you look and examine, please examine your life and consider this, that God may go show you a mercy to crush that God in your life, but we need to also vigorously attempt to uproot those gods. And one way that I can consider to encourage you this, one way that we can try to uproot those gods in our own life is to consider the areas where you respond with the most anger when it's disturbed. Where do you respond with the most anger? How do I get that? I actually get that from a verse in James, where James tells us, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. So when you want something and it's taken from you, James says, that's the source of wars and fighting among you. Really simple example, if I want peace and quiet in my house, and my kids disturb that peace and quiet, and I set that up as a God that I want, look at, I'm talking, I'm just, I'm being serious. Guess who I sacrificed to my God? My kids. Because they catch my wrath. 
Do you see that? If I am acknowledging that they are not a disturbance but a gift from God, but instead I have this thing I want to worship, I just need to rest, guys, back off. And usually it's not that kind. So when something gets taken, when something is removed from you and it's a God, it can cause anger, it can cause you to war and fight. And we need to fight against that. But there's another response, and that response is we see in Moses and Aaron in this text, and it's obedience. Specifically, 6 and 7 of chapter 7 says that Moses and Aaron did this. They did just as the Lord commanded them. They did it. It's striking that in the story of the plague and from there on out, while, Aaron, while Moses is saying, God, I can't speak, I'm not clear, I can't speak, I can't articulate anything, all of a sudden, Moses is the one talking, and we don't actually hear him working through Aaron anymore. It's almost like a parent, God's a parent going like, okay, I'll give you Aaron, knowing full well that Moses is equipped and that God is with him. And Moses steps into that in obedience. And the other part of this I want to also encourage us with is that we have a lot of young people here, right? We're like younger in our years, 20s, 20s into maybe 30s, right? But Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. It is, you're 40 years in Egypt, 40 years of preparation in the desert, and now he begins to follow God fully at 80. It is never too late to obey and follow after God and for him to use you mightily. So what's the option? And what do we see as God's lordship is extended, as his transcendence, his power, his eminence is on display? It's for us to repent and obey. Repent and obey. See, Christ reveals God perfectly in himself as he obeys the Father fully. We see Christ and we celebrate him this, this week as we look towards Easter, but he displays for us the Father. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But, but belief in God is beyond the superficial. The magicians believe superficial, that, that there was something supernatural happened, but the demons also believe and tremble, but they don't follow and trust after God. See, belief is not superficial agreement. Belief is trusting God fully and obeying the rule of God as Lord in every aspect of our life. That chapter, that verse again, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That is what God calls from us. And that is what we're able to do fully in Christ. Because he takes on our sin for us. All that sinfulness, all that rebellion, all those things that we struggle in that we can't get rid of in our life, he takes it on the cross. And that's what we celebrate next week, his death and his resurrection. He takes that for us. So now while we are weak in our flesh to fight against those gods that we want to set up, that we want to seek after, we can follow after him in Christ. And now we can love God fully. We can love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, because Christ is in us, working through us, and that his spirit fills us. We can love him wholly and fully, and I pray that you do. Trust and obey God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the way you demonstrate your power uh, in this text and that you teach us. Lord, I ask that um, you give us a grace a kindness, that you would uproot those gods which we hold on to in our own lives, that you would reveal that to us, and Lord, that in the end you would make us more like Christ. And I ask all this in his name. Amen.